Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig. Thank you. If God really is all-loving, then how can he send anybody to hell? The question is almost an embarrassment for Christians today. On the one hand, the Bible teaches that God is love. And yet, on the other hand, it warns that those who reject God face everlasting punishment, and it contains frequent warnings about the danger of going to hell. But aren't these two somehow inconsistent with each other? Well, a lot of people seem to think that they're inconsistent, but in fact, this isn't at all obvious. After all, there's no explicit contradiction between them. The statement, God is all-loving, and some people go to hell, are not explicitly contradictory. So if these two are inconsistent, there must be some hidden assumptions which would serve to bring out the contradiction and make it explicit. But what are these assumptions? It seems to me that the detractor of hell is making two crucial assumptions. First of all, he assumes that if God is all-powerful, then God can create a world in which everyone freely chooses to give his life to God and is saved. And second, he assumes that if God is all-loving, then God prefers a world in which everyone freely chooses to give his life to God and be saved. Since God is thus both willing and able to create a world in which everyone is freely saved, it follows that no one goes to hell. Now, notice that both of these assumptions have to be necessarily true in order to prove that God and hell are logically inconsistent with each other. So long as there's even a possibility that one of these assumptions is false, it's possible that God is all-loving, and yet some people go to hell. Thus, the opponent of hell has to shoulder a very heavy burden of proof indeed. He has to prove that both of these assumptions are necessarily true. But in fact, it seems to me that neither of these assumptions is necessarily true. In order to explain this, let me lay out for you the Christian teaching on God and hell. According to the Bible, God's nature is both perfect justice and perfect love. Both of these are equally powerful, and neither can be compromised. Let's look first at God's justice. I was talking to a student once about his need of salvation, and he said to me, I trust in God's justice. I don't think that there could be anyone who would be more fair or just than God. I have complete confidence in his decision. Now, this is true. God is just. He is totally uh, fair. He has no axe to grind. He's not out to get you. He is the most competent, intelligent, impartial, and fairest judge you will ever have. No one will get a bum decision at God's judgment seat. Every human being can be guaranteed absolute justice. But this is precisely the problem. For God's justice exposes man's inadequacy. The Bible says that every person has failed to live up to God's moral law and so finds himself guilty before God. The biblical word for this moral failure is sin. The Bible says that all persons are under the power of sin. 
None is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have gone wrong. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We thus find ourselves under the law of divine justice. You reap what you sow. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please God's spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. The prophet Ezekiel declared, the soul that sins shall die. And the apostle Paul echoes, the wages of sin is death. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. This is justice in its purest form. The only problem is nobody measures up. So if we rely on the justice of God, we're sunk. There is nobody here who deserves to go to heaven. Nobody's good enough. So if we depend on God's justice, we've had it. It's all over. Therefore, we must cast ourselves on God's mercy. Even though we are guilty and deserve to die, God still loves us. Sometimes people get the idea that God is a sort of cosmic tyrant up there out to get us. But this isn't the Christian understanding of God. Listen to what the Bible says. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. So turn and live. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Here, God literally pleads with people to turn back from their self-destructive course of action and be saved. And in the New Testament, it says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Thus, God finds himself in a sort of dilemma. On the one hand are his justice and holiness, which demand punishment for sin rightly deserved. On the other hand are God's love and mercy, which demand reconciliation and forgiveness. Both are essential to his nature. Neither can be compromised. What is God to do in this dilemma? The answer is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of God's justice and love. They meet at the cross, the love and the wrath of God. At the cross, we see God's love for people and his wrath upon sin. On the one hand, we see God's love. Jesus died in our place. He voluntarily took upon himself the death penalty of sin that we deserved. The Bible says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But at the cross, we also see God's wrath as his just judgment is poured out upon sin. Jesus was our substitute. He tasted death for every human being and bore the punishment for every sin. None of us can imagine what he endured. As Olin Curtis has written, There alone our Lord opens his mind, his heart, 
his personal consciousness to the whole inflow of the horror of sin, the endless history of it, from the first choice of selfishness on, on to the eternity of hell, the boundless ocean and desolation he allows wave upon wave to overwhelm his soul. Jesus endured hell for us so that none of us would have to endure it ourselves. That's why Jesus is the key. And life's supreme question becomes, what will you do with Christ? In order to receive forgiveness, we need to place our trust in Christ as our Savior and the Lord of our lives. But if we reject Christ, then we reject God's mercy and fall back on his justice. And you know where you stand there. If we reject Jesus' offer of forgiveness, then there simply is no one else to pay the penalty for your sin, except yourself. Thus, in a sense, God doesn't send anybody to hell. His desire is that everyone be saved, and he pleads with people to come to him. But if we reject Christ's sacrifice for our sin, then God has no choice but to give us what we deserve. God will not send us to hell, but we will send ourselves. Our eternal destiny thus lies in our own hands. It's a matter of our free choice where we shall spend eternity. Now, if this scenario is even possible, it follows that no inconsistency has been demonstrated between God's being all-loving and some people's going to hell. For given that God has created us with freedom of the will, it follows that he cannot guarantee that all persons will freely give their lives to him and be saved. The Bible makes it very clear that God desires every person to be saved, and by his Spirit he seeks to draw every person to himself. The only obstacle to universal salvation is therefore human free will. It's logically impossible to make someone freely do something. God's being all-powerful doesn't mean that he can do the logically impossible. Thus, even though he is all-powerful, God cannot make everyone freely be saved. Given human freedom and human uh, stubbornness, some people may go to hell despite God's desire and efforts to save them. Moreover, it's far from obvious that God's being all-loving compels him to prefer a world in which uh, no one goes to hell over a world in which some people do. Suppose that God could create a world in which everyone is freely saved, but there's only one problem. All such worlds have only one person in them. Does God's being all-loving compel him to prefer one of these underpopulated worlds? over a world in which multitudes are saved, even though some people freely go to hell? I don't think so. God's being all-loving implies that in any world he creates, he desires and strives for the salvation of every person in that world. But people who would freely reject God's every effort to save them shouldn't be allowed to have some sort of uh, veto power over what worlds God is free to create. Why should the joy and the blessedness of those who would freely accept God's salvation be precluded because of those who would stubbornly and freely reject it? 
It seems to me that God's being all loving would at the very most require him to create a world having an optimal balance between saved and lost. A world where as many as possible freely accept salvation and as few as possible freely reject it. Thus, neither of the crucial assumptions made by the opponent of the doctrine of hell is necessarily true. God's being all-powerful and all-loving does not entail that everyone will freely embrace God's salvation or that no one will freely reject it. And thus, no inconsistency has been demonstrated between God and hell. Now, the opponent of the doctrine of hell might admit that given human freedom, God cannot guarantee that everyone will be saved. Some people might freely condemn themselves by rejecting Christ's offer of salvation. But, he might argue, it would be unjust of God to condemn people forever. For even grievous sins, like those of the Nazi torturers in the death camps, still deserve only a finite punishment. Therefore, at most, hell could be a sort of purgatory, uh, lasting an appropriate length of time for each person before that person is released and admitted into heaven. Eventually, hell would be emptied and heaven filled. This is an interesting objection because it argues that hell is incompatible not with God's love, but with his justice. The objection is saying that God is unjust because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Now, if one finds this objection persuasive, one could avoid it by adopting the doctrine of annihilationism. Some Christians hold that hell is not endless separation from God, but rather the annihilation of the damned. The damned simply cease to exist, whereas the saved are given eternal life. Now, while I'm not of this opinion myself, it does represent one way in which you could blunt the force of this objection. But is the objection itself persuasive? I think not. Number one, the objection equivocates between every sin which we commit and all the sins which we commit. We could agree that every individual sin which a person commits deserves only a finite punishment. But it doesn't follow from this that all of a person's sins, taken together as a whole, deserve only a finite punishment. If a person commits an infinite number of sins, then the sum total of all such sins deserves infinite punishment. Now, of course, nobody commits an infinite number of sins in the earthly life. But what about in the afterlife? Insofar as the inhabitants of hell continue to hate God and reject him, they continue to sin, and so accrue to themselves more guilt and more punishment. In a real sense, then, hell is self-perpetuating. In such a case, every sin has a finite punishment, but because sinning goes on forever, so does the punishment. But secondly, why think that every sin does have only a finite punishment? We could agree that sins like theft, lying, adultery, and so forth are only a finite consequence and so only deserve a finite punishment. But in a sense, these sins are not what serves to separate someone from God. For Christ has died for those sins. The penalty for those sins has been paid. One has only to accept Christ as Savior, to be completely free and clean of those sins. But the refusal to accept Christ and his sacrifice 
seems to be a sin of a different order altogether. For this sin decisively separates one from God and his salvation. To reject Christ is to reject God himself. And this is a sin of infinite gravity and proportion, and therefore deserves infinite punishment. We ought not, therefore, to think of hell primarily as punishment for the array of sins of finite consequence which we have committed, but as the just due for a sin of infinite consequence, namely the rejection of God himself. Third, finally, it's possible that God would permit the damned to leave hell and go to heaven, but that they freely refuse to do so. It's possible that persons in hell grow only more implacable in their hatred of God as time goes on. Rather than repent and ask God for forgiveness, they continue to curse him and reject him. God thus has no choice but to leave them where they are. In such a case, the door to hell is locked, as Jean-Paul Sartre said, from the inside. The damned thus choose eternal separation from God. So again, as long as any of these scenarios is even possible, it invalidates the objection that God's perfect justice is incompatible with everlasting separation from God. But perhaps at this point, the opponent of the doctrine of hell can try one last objection. Granted that it is neither unloving nor unjust of God to create a world in which some people freely reject him forever, what about the fate of those who have never heard about Christ? How can God condemn people who, through no fault of their own, never have the opportunity to receive Christ as their Savior? A person's salvation or damnation thus appears to be the result of historical and geographical accident, which is incompatible with an all-loving God. This objection is, however, fallacious because it assumes that those who have never heard about Christ are judged on the same basis as those who have. But the Bible says that the unreached will be judged on a quite different basis than those who have heard the gospel. God will judge the unreached on the basis of their response to his self-revelation in nature and conscience. The Bible says that from the created order alone, all persons can know that a creator God exists and that God has implanted his moral law in the hearts of all persons so that they are held morally accountable to God. Then the Bible promises salvation to anyone who responds affirmatively to this self-revelation of God. Now, this does not mean that they can be saved apart from Christ. Rather, it means that the benefits of Christ's sacrifice can be applied to them without their conscious knowledge of Christ. They would be like people in the Old Testament before Jesus came who had no conscious knowledge of Christ, but who were saved on the basis of his sacrifice through their response to the information that God had revealed to them. And thus, salvation is truly available to all persons at all times. It all depends upon our free response. No Christian likes the doctrine of hell. I truly wish with all my heart that universal salvation was true. But to pretend that people are not sinful and in need of salvation would be as cruel and deceptive 
as pretending that somebody was healthy, even though you knew that he had a fatal disease for which you knew the cure. The issue before us today is not, therefore, whether we like the doctrine of hell. The issue is whether the doctrine is possibly true. I've argued that no inconsistency exists between the Christian conceptions of God and hell. If Dr. Bradley is to maintain that they are inconsistent, then the burden of proof rests upon his shoulders. Thank you, Dr. Craig. We'll now turn things over to Dr. Bradley for his opening remarks. Dr. Bradley? Dr. Craig likes to talk about hell in such soothing terms as everlasting separation from God. This is a favorite dodge of Christians. It makes our question sound rather like, can a loving God send some of his children to Hawaii? Think of it like this, and the answer seems obvious. Why not, if that's where some of them choose to go? Now, some Christians do, in fact, think of the question euphemistically in these terms. And some like to go further and think that when the children find that Hawaii is a little bit like hell because it's a bit too hot and the permanent locals are giving them a hard time, Father will relent and welcome them to his mansions on high. Such Christians are known as universalists. They believe that a time will come when God will actualize a perfect world known as heaven in which all of us will live with God in a state of joyous freedom and eternal happiness. Now, I see nothing logically impossible about this idea of heaven, and presumably neither does Dr. Craig. Yet, Dr. Craig rejects the universalist doctrine because the Bible tells us that the majority of God's children will be excluded from heaven and sent and said to hell. And here he's right. The Bible, we both agree, is exclusivist, not universalist. Keeping Dr. Craig's biblical conservatism in mind, then, let's ask, how should we think of God's sending people to hell? Not like Stalin sending people to exile in Siberia. It ought not even to be thought of as like Hitler's sending people to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. For both of these are tame in comparison with the horror of being sent to hell, at least Auschwitz, Belsen, and the rest were death camps, finite in duration both for those who died and for those who survived. Hell, however, offers no such finality to those of us who are to fill its chambers. None will emerge from its torment, and its tortures will continue forever and ever. Now, you may think I'm exaggerating, but let me then quote from what the good book has to say about the fate of those who will be eternally separated from God. Quote from Revelation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Note that the so-called Lamb, who features so prominently in these divine spectator sports, is Jesus himself. He plays much the same sort of role as that 
of the subsequently sainted Pope Pius V in this illustration, torturing a dissenting priest. Note, too, that Jesus himself is reported as having similar views of hell. No fuzzy talk of eternal separation from him. On a quick chant, I found 20 or so passages in the Gospel of Matthew alone, in which Jesus threatens unbelievers with what he calls fiery hell, that is, with eternal punishment in an eternal fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What should Christians say about such passages? They're faced with a devastating trilemma. To renounce them as untrue because patently malevolent would be to suppose that God or Jesus was either mistaken or misreported. But if Jesus was mistaken, he can't be divine. And if Jesus was misreported, then the Bible can't be the true word of God. A believer has no option then but to accept the doctrine of hell fire in all its obscenities. Now let's ask, who will escape the tortures of hell? St. Paul tells us that only those who have been sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. He was, of course, only echoing Jesus himself, who repeatedly tells us that only those who believe in him will go to heaven. Neither good works nor generous donations will get you there. The legions of the damned, according to Jesus, include all those who don't have the right belief, the belief that he, Jesus, is Lord and Savior. In short, those who will be sent to hell include all who haven't, as the evangelicals put it, been born again. Dr. Craig's commendably firm on this. There is no other name, he says, whereby we may be saved. On his view, even the most saintly believers of other religions are lost and dying without Christ. Dr. Craig, like Jesus, is an exclusivist. But isn't there a problem here? <clears throat> Since it's a necessary condition of believing in the name of Jesus that you've both heard his name and understood its significance, no one can be saved from hell if they haven't been evangelized. What then of those who've lived in times or places in which the name of Jesus is unknown or ill-understood? How do we suppose that a loving God will send to hell all those who can't believe, either because they've never heard or because, like me, they have heard but still find it impossible to believe? Once more, Dr. Craig bites the bullet. Yes, he says, that's the way it is. The gate to salvation, he likes to remind us, quoting Jesus, is narrow and the way is hard, and those who find it are few. The exclusion of most human beings on the grounds that they don't believe in Jesus is a simple consequence of the fact that most of them haven't even heard of him. Now, Dr. Craig, as we'll see in a bit, knows and appreciates his logic. <clears throat> I do wonder, however, whether he takes the same view of children who die before they understand what all this Jesus talk amounts to. Will they too, as St. Augustine believed, be excluded? Infants he'd have to admit are just as tarnished with original sin as are others who are in no position to believe. So if, like him, we think God justified in sending the unevangelized to hell on the ground that he knew from all eternity that they would have rejected Christ even if they'd heard his name, why shouldn't he think just God justified in condemning non-believing infants on precisely the same grounds? Would he have the courage to tell that 
the grieving parents. Now, I can understand how those who believe in the God of the Old Testament might see no problem about that God consigning people to hell, for that God is often depicted as unjust. For example, he punishes not only sinners, but their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. He's often depicted as unloving and unrighteous. For example, he gave Moses' soldiers 32,000 captured virgins for themselves while ordering the slaughter of their mothers and brothers who were also prisoners of war. Summing it up, God even says of himself in the book of Isaiah that he creates evil. Here's our problem of inconsistency. The God in whom Dr. Craig believes is supposed to have more desirable properties than the God of the Old Testament. He's supposed to have the properties stated in Proposition 1. God is omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good, just, righteous, merciful, and loving. At this point, our question emerges into sharp focus from the fog of euphemistic verbiage. How could this God send the majority of human race to eternal torture and the fires of hell. The problem is that Proposition 1, when analyzed, seems logically inconsistent with the second proposition, that God will torture the majority of humans eternally in hell for the sin of unbelief, even though most of them have never even heard Jesus' name. Now, Dr. Craig and I both agree that this is a question of applied logic. But think for a moment and just test your intuitions about one and two. If it would be inconsistent to suppose that that Hitler was acting lovingly while sending the majority of German Jews to the gas chambers for lacking the right parentage, wouldn't it be equally as inconsistent to claim that God is acting lovingly while sending the majority of the human race to roast in hell for lacking the right belief? Before proving that one and two are indeed inconsistent, as I think they are, I'm first going to have to refute refute a logical argument by means of which Dr. Craig thinks he can prove that they aren't. In his published works on this issue, Dr. Craig claims that there's a third proposition, which he mentioned today, and it's roughly number three as I've got it there, that God has actualized a world containing an optimal balance between saved and unsaved. And those who are unsaved, he'll send to hell. And he says that this is both consistent with number one and together with number one implies number two. Therefore, he claims it is one is consistent with two. Now, I agree that if proposition number three had both of these features, then it would indeed follow by a well-known theorem of logic that one is consistent with two. But the trouble is that three isn't consistent with one, since, as I'll show, three implies a proposition with which one is inconsistent. Just think about it. In talking about an optimal world, Dr. Craig is talking about the most desirable world that God could have created given that he wanted to create a world in which people have free will and can exercise it by deciding whether or not to accept Christ. But this means that, as he himself has acknowledged, Proposition 3 wouldn't be true unless it were also true that 4, that is, unless it were also true that there is no possible world inhabited by creatures with free will in which all persons freely receive Christ. 
In other words, as he acknowledges, three implies four. But now consider heaven. Clearly the concept of heaven is a coherent one. That is to say, in technical terms, heaven is a possible world. If it weren't, not even God or the saved could exist there. Moreover, Dr. Craig takes it to be one that's populated solely by believers who freely acknowledge Christ. That's to say, he and conservative Christians are committed to asserting the denial of four, namely five. That there is a possible world after all, which is inhabited by creatures with free will, all of whom freely receive Christ. But this spells trouble for Dr. Craig. If five is true, then both four and three are false, since a world in which some people go to heaven and others are sent to hell is by no means an optimal one. God can't be let off the hook, as it were, by saying that he couldn't have done any better without depriving his creatures of free choice. But worse is to come. For since five merely asserts a logical possibility, it is one of those propositions which, if true, is necessarily true. It then follows, in accordance with a few more theorems of logic, which I'll state later if necessary, that the denial of five, namely four, is necessarily false. And that three, which implies four, is also necessarily false, and therefore is inconsistent with one. The mere possibility of heaven shows his free will defense to be a logical fraud. Having demolished his defense, I'm now going to prove the inconsistency of one and two. First, I want to point out that there's a problem about God's foreknowledge of our free acts. It's not that I think that God's omniscience and consequent foreknowledge implies his predetermining what our acts will be, despite the fact that the Bible says the two go hand in hand. The trouble lies elsewhere in the fact that God's foreknowledge of what the unsaved would do, together with his perverse determination to create them nevertheless, makes him what lawyers call an accessory before the fact. And therefore responsible, at least in part, for the outcome. After all, it is up to God whether to create free creatures or not. Just as we must bear responsibility for the consequences of our freely chosen actions, so must he. The New Testament God, every bit as much as the Old Testament one, creates us as sinners in an evil world, knowing well what the consequences would be for some of us, namely the worst evil of all, hell. At the very least, therefore, he shares responsibility for these evils. Further proof that one and two are inconsistent. I can demonstrate the inconsistency of one and two by appeal to the following logico-semantic principle, broadly lo logical principle, if you like. P. In order for a descriptive concept to have any significant application, there must be possible circumstances in which it doesn't apply. Possible circumstances, that is, in which some logically opposed concept does apply. Now, it follows from this principle that if we were to describe a person as perfectly good, then we commit ourselves to saying that he or she doesn't act in the kinds of ways that evil people do. Fair enough? It follows further that if we were to describe someone such as Hitler as perfectly good despite all his evil doing, we'd be playing word games which are as intellectually dishonest as they are morally pernicious. Needless to say, 
This principle applies just as much when describing God as it does when describing Hitler. And when it's applied to the descriptions of God given in Proposition 1, it yields the following truths. One, P1, a perfectly good being would not torture anyone for any period, whatever, however brief. P2, a just being wouldn't punish someone eternally for the sins committed during a brief lifetime, but would proportion the punishment to the offense. P3, a righteous being would not punish someone eternally for unavoidable lack of belief. P4, a merciful being wouldn't be eternally unforgiving to those who have offended it. And finally, a loving being would not bring about and perpetuate the suffering of those that it loves. But now the logical inconsistency between one and two becomes obvious on several scores all at once. For one, in conjunction with P1 through P5, implies that the Christian God won't do the very things that two says he will do. The answer to our original question is that for purely logical reasons, God cannot send people to hell. Dr. Craig's concept of a loving God sending people to hell is logically absurd. I've just shown, as I see it, that we have compelling reasons for not believing in Dr. Craig's sort of God. But, finally, let me alert you to something deeply important. All this talk about what God can or cannot do can easily trap us into accepting the underlying presupposition that a God actually exists. But are there any reasons to suppose that the Christian God does in fact exist? Or that he loves us? I'd say no for a host of reasons. The most important being that as we've just seen, the Christian concept of God who sends people to hell is inconsistent. We have the best of all possible reasons therefore to be atheists. As to whether some other God exists, some inclined to be an agnostic. In my view, there's as little reason to believe in the existence of any God as there is to believe in the existence of Santa or the Tooth Fairy. The fact that we can talk about gods, build them temples, make sacrifices on their behalf, etc., shows only that some of us suffer from what Bertrand Russell called the cruel thirst to worship. and like to take flights of fantasy into worlds of fiction. But not all fictions are on a par. Stories about Santa or the Tooth Fairy are fairly innocuous. But the Christian fiction, with its story of evils in an afterworld, demonstrably isn't. Belief in it has been responsible for some of the most horrendous evils of this world. The evils of witch hunts, religious wars, persecution, evils such as those in which the conquistadors first baptized Indian infants, thus saving their souls, then dashed out their brains so as to ensure that they couldn't become heretics. Evil such as those in which the Inquisition cast non-conforming thinkers into temporal fires so that their souls thus purified might escape the fires of eternity. If there were an omniscient God, he would have known from the very beginning that all these atrocities and many more would result from believing in him. He'd therefore be as responsible for such evils as that other creature of Christian mythology, the devil. 
beware of such beliefs. I hope that you will come to see, as I once reluctantly did, that they can be hazardous to your health, not just physically, but intellectually and morally as well. We'll now move to the next segment of the debate. In this segment, we'll have a 20-minute discussion period. Again, each speaker will have 10 minutes to direct questions to the other speaker and receive responses. It's a bit of a freewheeling time, but after 10 minutes, we'll switch. And to start things out, we'll have Dr. Craig asking questions of Dr. Bradley. Dr. Craig? I'll just wait a second till the noise quiets down. Let me say that I, I think you certainly grasped the, uh, the nettle firmly in the sense that you tried to do exactly what I asked you to do, namely to furnish a positive proof that, uh, in fact, God and hell are logically inconsistent. Um, let's start off at the beginning of your speech. You quoted a passage from the book of Revelation about uh, someone being tormented forever in the lake of fire. Who is that talking about that is going to be tormented in that way? In the immediate context, it is all those who have the mark of the beast on their forehead. Uh, if you I take a look at a few verses back, a chapter or so back, you'll find that all those whose names are not written in the book of life will have the mark of the beast imprinted on their forehead, and they are the ones who will be tormented in the lake of fire and brimstone. I, I, can you give us the reference for that? Because I don't think that's accurate. Well, uh, Pardon? Revelation 14, but I think the verse, the chapter earlier that required for that. Maybe, maybe we'll look I believe that, that, yeah, all right. I think that the passage is talking about Satan. It says that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and tormented in this way. Isn't it true that uh, the Bible uses a number of different images for the uh, state of the damned? Yes, it is. Let me quote you a different one then. Um, <clears throat> we can come back to... Revelation, as soon as I can find it, or somebody else can. But um, let me quote from Jesus' own words in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. The angel shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Yes, what I was asking, aren't there there other metaphors than fire used in the Bible to characterize the the estate of... of Well, I found just in the book of Revelation, uh, of uh, Matthew alone, 20, I can put them up on the other head if you wish, in which Jesus explicitly talks about eternal fire, eternal punishment in it, weeping and gnashing of teeth therein. But isn't it the case that the scripture also uses... Metaphors such as outer darkness, separation from God, that this notion of fire is just one metaphorical image of hell among many others that are found in the New Testament. Well, I've got two points to make about that. There may indeed be other paler metaphors, but it's this one, this fiery metaphor, which most people have seized upon and which most people have believed in and which is the most morally pernicious insofar as belief in it has led to such things as the following. Let me just quote... Well, no, no, I, I, don't, I, I don't want to hear about that. I, I want to concentrate on this. You admit, then, that this is a metaphor. 
Uh, no, well, why should I admit it's a metaphor any more than any other doctrines in the New Testament? For example, the doctrine of Christ's second coming. Is that a metaphor? Is the doctrine of his salvation a metaphor? It's, isn't it the case that the majority of Christian uh, New Testament scholars interpret uh, these passages as metaphorical for the suffering and the anguish of those who are separated from God, but not necessarily to be taken as literal uh, flames such as we experience here in this world. It, it is true that the majority of uh, Christian scholars of the New Testament do take a charitable interpretation right. of this, but, but, just let me remind you, that as soon as they start taking charitable interpretations of that metaphor, they start looking at the question of whether or not other claims, other doctrines, are purely metaphorical. Sure. Too. And you get the position where so many New Testament scholars today, other than those who are evangelicals, claim that the whole of the biblical story needs to be demythologized. Well, that's a different issue. That's, that's a different issue. That's a different issue than the use of literary metaphor as a literary device. You're talking about historicity and so forth. Let me go on to your question you asked about the condemnation of those who have never heard. You characterize my position as the condemnation of most people as a result of their not having heard. After uh, listening to my first speech, wouldn't you like to retract that statement as inaccurate? Uh, no, on the grounds of my having read both your article in Faith and Philosophy, entitled in no other name. Yes, and isn't, isn't it the case that in that article I argued that those who have never heard the gospel will not be judged on the basis of their response to the gospel, and that therefore their condemnation is not due to the fact that they have not heard. Their condemnation is due to the fact that they haven't lived up to the light of nature and conscience, which is available to all persons. Let me quote page 186. Perhaps some will be saved through such a response of general revelation, response to general revelation. Yes. But, you say, on the basis of Scripture, and I agree with you totally, we must say that such anonymous Christians are relatively rare. Right. They, and the, okay. next Relatively says, the next sentence says, those who are judged and condemned on the basis of their failure to respond to the light of general revelation. It's, I'm not saying that they're condemned because they haven't heard. Let me go on to the question about uh, uh, the, the, uh, whether or not one and two, could you put those back up for yeah. us? Yeah. Whether one and two are, are logically inconsistent. Um, I think that your argument is incorrect uh, where, where you say that three entails four. All right, uh, where you argue that uh, three entails four. Uh, that seems to me to be inaccurate. What I'm arguing is that there is no world which is feasible for God to create, which is inhabited by creatures in which all persons freely receive Christ. But I'm not at all arguing that there is no possible world in which this uh, is true. It's that this is a world that is not actualizable by God, but it's certainly a possible world. For the purposes of this presentation, I didn't use your own terminology since I thought most people wouldn't understand it. But you might like to define for them what you mean by a feasible world. Right. I take it that it's a subclass of the set of possible worlds, Correct. namely those that subclass in which people act of their own free will. No, no. It would be a subset, a proper subset of all the range of possible worlds which are such that God is capable of actualizing them. To give an illustration, suppose 
that if Peter were created in just a certain set of circumstances, he would freely deny Christ. Now, it's logically possible for him to be in those circumstances and affirm Christ, but, but he just wouldn't. If he were in those circumstances, he would freely deny Christ. If that's the case, it's not within God's power to actualize a world in which Peter is in precisely those circumstances, and yet he affirms Christ. So, three doesn't entail four. There is a possible world in which creatures have free will and freely receive Christ, but it's just that God's not capable of actualizing it. But what's, what's heaven? Isn't heaven, okay. a, isn't heaven a, a world, a no. possible world? No, heaven isn't a possible world. A possible world, as philosophers use that, as, as you know, is a maximal state of affairs, which includes not just the afterlife, but the, pre, after, the pre-life on the way to heaven. And the, the point is here that it may not be possible. For so this, Dr. Craig understood, included. Now, a possible world, by a possible world, we simply mean a state of affairs which is describable by a maximally consistent set of propositions, or what Plantinga calls a book. And we get that, as Carnap and others have always pointed out, simply by taking every set of, ele- a set of every elementary proposition and affirming or denying each of them. We get a possible world in that way, which is heaven. Technically, God heaven is a possible world. If it isn't, then it's not no, world, it's an impossible world. If, if heaven may not be a possible world when you take it in isolation uh, by itself. It may be that the only way in which God could actualize a heaven of, uh, of free creatures all worshiping him and, and not falling into sin would be by having this, so to speak, this run-up to it, this advanced life during which there is a veil of decision-making in which some people choose for God, some people choose against God. Otherwise... You don't know that heaven is an actualizable world. That, you have no way of knowing that possibility. I'm going to have to introduce um, We'll interject at this point and switch things over to the second part of this segment. <laughs> Dr. Bradley will now have an opportunity to address questions to Dr. Craig. Well, <clears throat> it's obviously going to be to my point to, to uh, continue the little discussion we've had. You were saying, in effect, that when I characterize heaven as a possible world in which everybody freely receives Christ, that I'm wrong insofar as that had to be preceded by this actual world, this world of veil, this veil of tears and woe in which people are sinful and the like. I'm saying that it may not be feasible for God to actualize heaven in isolation from such a, 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 an antecedent world. Well, <clears throat> you have... You have got to provide grounds then for saying that there are logical connections as opposed to merely contingent ones between various stages of the actual world. And that would be a very difficult thing to try to prove. I don't think that I do have to do that because these these statements about what creatures would freely do under different circumstances are contingent. They're not necessary truths. And it may just be the case that if God tried to actualize a world in which, say, everybody is just in heaven, that some people would go wrong and that it wouldn't be, he wouldn't be able to do it. And that's just a contingent fact uh, that, that is the case. Right. I'll return to this mic, if I might, okay? And let me uh, try to get my point across on this, because this is crucial. Yes. Uh, as we both agree, 
Dr. Craig's strategy has been to try to prove that Propositions 1 and 2 are compatible on the grounds that there's a third proposition which is, in, which is consistent with 1 and which together with 1 implies 3. I've said that 3... Entails 2. Entails 2, sorry. I've said that his 3 is all by itself inconsistent with 1. Let's look at it like this. Whoop. That one's not working very well. Maybe red would be more appropriate. <laughs> Let that circle represent the set of all possible persons that God could have created with free will, and of whom he knows in advance from the very beginning, in the words of the Bible, what the outcome of their choices would be. Okay? Now, that, that set of possible persons, possibilia, as you call them in one of your works, can be subdivided, well, more or less arbitrarily, we'll say, into those who are going, would be saved if he were to create them, and those who would be damned no. as a consequence of their free choices, right? I don't want to be difficult. Is this on? Okay, I don't want to be too difficult here, but I think that's too simplistic, because... Some people might be damned if created in some circumstances, yeah. but saved if they were created in other circumstances. So you can't just divide the line down the middle and put people on either half. It, it depends on what world these possible well, persons are put into. Yeah, so we can shift the line wherever you wish according to which actual world God chooses to create. All right. All right. Now, he creates an actual world. These are just possible individuals up here. The whole domain of possible individuals with free will. Here we've got the actual ones. And as you can see, some of them on this have been assigned to heaven because God knew in advance that if he were to create them in these circumstances, they would be saved. And here we've got those he's consigned to hell. In fact, you know, I've been generous to God and you here because I've created equal pies. Yes. <clears throat> but of course, you know, Jesus says it's going to be pretty rough on most of us. Now, <clears throat> the point is this. Why did God have to create just this subset of possible individuals with free will? He could have sliced the pie a very different way. He could have sliced the pie so that there weren't any in this segment at all, the segment of hell. He could have chosen to create a world in which no actual individuals like you or me were existent. Right. After all, there's nothing all that great about us, is there? Right. And so he could have created but all these and, possible And my point is that he wouldn't be able to guarantee, so long as those people have free will, that they would all freely respond to his offer of salvation and be saved. But if he knows in advance that these will, in the cir those circumstances, be saved by virtue of freely accepting God's uh, offer of salvation through the blood of Jesus, then why not? Because there may not be a compossible set of individuals in which if you put all of them together in a world, that all of them freely receive God's salvation and are saved. It may be that individual S 
would only be okay. saved in a world if, in fact, in that world, individual yes, S prime I, I, were lost. I understand. So that it's point. impossible for God to, or, or infeasible for God to, ma- to create I a world which all are saved. Well, about them having to be compossible. And let's just say that out of the set of all possible inhabitants of the, this world that God's going to choose to create, only some are compossible. So let's make it a subset. Well, right. no, no, we now have a subset of compossible individuals, all of whom would be saved. But see, my point is, you don't know that the there, you don't know that such a set is not the empty set. It could be the empty set. Well, look, you you, you play with possibilities. You say, you talk about you, uh, it's possible at this, it's possible at that. Right. I'm asking you to confront some actual examples of possibilities. Heaven is allegedly a state of affairs in which God exists and the only other persons who exist are people who either have been saved because they believed in Jesus' name or would have, been, would have believed in Jesus' name and have been saved. Or you can throw in a few of those who get there by general revelation. Well, but that, that in itself presupposes there was an antecedent pre-mortem it, world. It, it doesn't logically presuppose it, causally perhaps, but you understand the distinction between causal ties and logical ones as well as I do. You've still got three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so much here. Um, <clears throat> What I've just been doing, of course, is to uh, go over the, some of the steps that I made in refuting the free will defense that Dr. Craig has employed. Uh, we haven't yet discussed the counter-arguments that I produced, or rather the, 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 the if you like, the counter-thrusts that I made, where I employed that broadly logical, or as I called it, logico-semantical principle uh, about the use of descriptive expressions. And <clears throat> I produced a set of uh, subsidiary theses, uh, all of which follow from that, which together with one imply the falsity of two. I'll remind you of those if you wish, but I'd like you to say something about them because I right. think you're going to have some problems in trying to reject uh, <clears throat> all, or even for that matter, any of the yeah. subsidiary. I reject both P as well as P1 to 5. I think that uh, P isn't even true. Well, look at what P says. I'll read it for those who can't see the, the overhead. In order for a descriptive concept to have any significant application, there must be some possible circumstances in which it doesn't apply. Well, now, that doesn't seem to me to be true at all. What that, that, that entails, P seems to me to entail, that there are no logically necessary truths. For example, the description of the uh, properties of a Euclidean right triangle on a planar surface. There is no possible circumstances under which that description doesn't apply, and yet it clearly has a significant application. Or God, I would say that God exists in all possible worlds, 
and has certain descriptive attributes essentially, and those are you're, 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 you're missing the point. I'm not stating that with respect to propositions. Of course, I would not, since, as you know, I'm as, a, as fervent a, a proponent of necessary truths as anyone. Mm -hmm. Rather, I'm talking about concepts. I'm saying that in order significantly to say of somebody that they, they are good, for example, we've got to understand what it would be like for them not to be good. You can't stretch the term good so as to encompass all those possible circumstances in which one would naturally call a person not good or evil. Now, that's a point that was made by Aristotle. The question we've been addressing isn't just a theological one, it's a logical one. Is it logically possible for God to be loving and to do all the heinous things that evil claims he will do to those who don't believe. Dr. Craig likes, as I said, to address this question in rather sanitized terms. He wants us to understand this talk about fiery hell and eternal punishment in sanitary terms, just as metaphors for something like, you know, as I put it right at the outset, being sent to Hawaii. But it isn't like that, and no orthodox believer has standardly believed it to be like that. Just think about, for example, that passage that is so often quoted in the pulpit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. How many times have you heard sermons preached on that? Often, I guess. But how often have you heard sermons preached upon what goes on a couple of verses later? Because two verses later, John 3:18, we read, and he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And it goes on further that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed him not. Here we've got exclusivism very clearly stated and the consequences of exclusion from salvation. Or if you want some more, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The Lord Jesus Christ shall be re revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, listen again, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. No mere alienating alienation and anguishing over not being in the nice place. Look, people have taken this seriously. And people have been bludgeoned into belief as a consequence of it. Let me read and display for you the kind of use that has been made of the doctrine of hell in the past. Here is a little gem from a book written by a Catholic priest known quite appropriately, as Father Furness. He was known as the children's apostle. And here he's describing what's going to happen to little children in hell. 
Read it for yourself as I read it too. His eyes are burning like two burning coals. Two long flames come out of his ears. Sometimes he opens his mouth and breath of blazing fire rolls out. But listen, there's a sound just like that of a kettle boiling. Is it really a kettle boiling? No. Then what is it? Hear what it is. It is the blood boiling in the scalding veins of that boy. The brain is boiling and bubbling in his head. The marrow is boiling in his bones. You see, part of the problem is that whether or not the belief in hell is true, the psychological state of believing in it has brought about some of the most finest evils that this world has ever known. Evils such as burning so-called witches in fire in accordance with the dictates of the Old Testament, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Do we just take that metaphorically? Condemning homosexuals to death. Why? Because they violated God's injunctions and if they weren't suitably punished on this earth, they would be punished even worse in the next life to come. I find the doctrine of hell obnoxious morally and I find it intellectually pernicious. It's intellectually pernicious because it numbs our critical capacities as well as it dulls our moral sensitivities. Believe in that sort of stuff and you can believe in anything. Believe in that sort of stuff and you feel you have the license to treat people any way you wish, provided you think, as with the Spanish Inquisition, as with the Roman Inquisition, as with the conquistadors, that you are sending people to heaven rather than to hell. It's often suggested that <clears throat> if you didn't believe in heaven, hell and heaven and all this God stuff, morality would have no objective basis. But just think about that for a moment. Take, what does objectivity mean with respect to morality? Surely it means unchanging. And yet, the God of the Old Testament is so very different from the God of the New Testament. The injunctions in the Old Testament, the commands of God, are different from those in the New Testament. And in both cases, many of them are morally obnoxious. My time is up. We'll now have Dr. Craig in his closing comments. In my opening speech, I argued that there is no incompatibility between God's being all-loving and some people uh, separating themselves from God forever and being lost in hell. And I suggested that if you're going to show those are incompatible, you have to show these two assumptions to be necessarily true. First, that if God is all-powerful, he can create a world in which everyone is freely saved. 
And I think it became very evident during the cross-examination time that Dr. Bradley has not succeeded in showing that that proposition is true. He's clearly confused the notion of possible worlds and feasible worlds. Certainly, it's logically possible for everyone to freely receive God's salvation and be saved. But so long as people are truly free, there is no guarantee that God can actualize or create such a world. So long as people are free, it may be that uh, if God actualizes a world of free creatures, that some of them would freely reject him and be lost. And I think that Dr. Bradley's uh, failure to distinguish between what's feasible and what's logically possible uh, invalidated his refutation of that point. Uh, I also argued that in any case, God's being all loving does not necessitate God preferring a world in which everybody is freely saved over a world in which some people are uh, freely damned, particularly if the worlds that uh, have universal salvation have overriding deficiencies. And Dr. Bradley never attempted to show that that assumption was necessarily true. So I think that he has failed to show any sort of logical inconsistency between God's being all loving and some people freely rejecting God and being lost forever. Now, he did have this positive argument that didn't get discussed very much based on Proposition P. But as I say, it seems to me that P is completely false. P would imply, for example, that a description of God who exists in all logically possible worlds is somehow a meaningless description because the opposite cannot be true. And that's just wrong. Or, or if you take a logical description of a circle with the properties, say, for figuring the area and circumference of a circle, those can't possibly be false. And yet that description of the circle is obviously meaningful. So all of his arguments based on P and P1 to 5, it seems to me, are just simply wrong. They're, they're logically uh, fallacious. P is false. It's probably necessarily false. So on the intellectual level, I don't think we've seen any good reason to think that it, it is incompatible or logically impossible to say that God is all-loving and all-just and that some people freely separate themselves from God forever. Now, Dr. Bradley made a good deal of uh, uh, quoting the, the fiery images from the Bible, which are one image among many others. Uh, and these images are generally taken to be metaphors. I don't have to defend such ridiculous things as what Father Furness uh, had to say. These are metaphors for eternal separation from God. And it's interesting, Dr. Bradley misquoted 2 Thessalonians 1.9 a minute ago. He quit reading right in the middle of the verse. The verse goes on to say, they shall suffer uh, uh, exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And that's really the essence of what hell is. It is eternal separation from God. And that is awful. I don't want to minimize it. It's horrible. The, the metaphors of flames and weeping and gnashing of teeth are meant to convey what it's like for a person to be lost forever in a world just of his own, with his own selfish heart, his own selfish desires, and away from the source of all love, all goodness, all truth, and, and so forth. So it is terrible. But my point is that God has provided a way of escape from this, and it's entirely up to us whether we avail ourselves of it or not. In fact... I like Dr. Bradley's trilemma here. Jesus, he says, who taught the doctrine of hell, is either malevolent, mistaken, or misreported. He's clearly not malevolent, because you look at the way he treated women and children and social outcasts and the disadvantaged, he's not a malevolent man. He's not misreported, because his teachings on hell are found in all of the strata of the New Testament documents. 
That means if Jesus is wrong about hell, he must be mistaken. But then the question comes down to who was Jesus then? Was this man mistaken? I would argue that Jesus uh, was who he claimed to be, the absolute revelation of God. And I think there are good historical grounds for believing this. I'm going to be sharing some of these tomorrow in a talk on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And on the basis of that, I think Jesus knew what he was talking about. He can't be mistaken as the Son of God and the revelation of God. And therefore, it follows that what he said is true. So that I think that far from disproving hell, Dr. Bradley's trilemma actually serves to show that what Jesus said is right, and it focuses our attention in the proper place. Who is Jesus? Finally, let me just close by, by saying this. It seems to me that this problem of the doctrine of hell isn't really for most people an intellectual problem at all. And I think in many of the comments Dr. Bradley just made in that last speech, we saw that. It's an emotional problem. Uh, and I think this is easily proven. How many people do you know who uh, reject God or Christianity because of the question, how could an all-holy and just God send people to heaven? That's a purely intellectual problem. That is every bit as difficult as how an all-loving God could send people to hell. But how many people reject God or Christ because they just can't figure out how an all-holy, all-just God could permit people to go to heaven? Nobody, right? I think this shows that the problem is primarily emotional, not intellectual. People just don't like the idea of a God who might send them to hell, and so they choose not to believe in him. But that kind of attitude is just suicidal. Uh, imagine you're standing in the middle of the street, and suddenly a friend on the curb says, Look out, here comes a car! Now, what do you do? Do you, do you stand there and close your eyes real tight and say, Anybody who would run over me can't be a very nice person. If I don't believe in him, then it won't affect me. I just won't believe that he exists. And then it's too late. A lot of people look like God, at God that way. They think just because they don't like the idea of God sending them to hell, if they close their eyes real tight and pretend he doesn't exist, then it doesn't affect them. And that kind of attitude is just fatal. My spiritual journey is different than Dr. Bradley's. I was raised in a non-Christian home and became a Christian in high school. And when I first heard the gospel, it bothered me deeply to think of my friends and others as going to hell. And I said, how could this be true? And the Christians wisely said to me, don't worry about those others. Worry about yourself. God judges them. We can't judge them. Only judge yourself. And when I looked into my own heart and saw the selfishness and evil that was there, I had no difficulty in seeing that God might send me to hell. And that impelled me to give my life to Christ as my Savior and, and to turn my life around. And I, I think that he can do that for you as well.